Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Will the House GOP vote to extend defense funding as a government shutdown over spending is looming? A key vote today failed to pass. Find out why. The Senate today voting to confirm two top military officials. That's despite a Republican senator's attempt to block those promotions over the Pentagon's abortion policy. Thousands of illegal immigrants are overrunning a tiny border town in Texas. The mayor declaring a state of emergency. A father in the group says he's fleeing the impact of organized crime to protect his children. President Biden announcing new aid to Ukraine as he meets Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky at the White House. What the two are saying amid mounting questions over accountability for U.S. taxpayer money. And Ukraine facing relentless Russian airstrikes. Cities lie in ruins. Citizens are in fear. Now one country says it will no longer provide weapons to Kyiv. And an escalating diplomatic conflict between India and Canada, with India halting all visa services for Canadian citizens. We begin with a tragic incident. At least one person died and 45 were injured after a school bus rolled over and crashed in upstate New York. At least three of the students had serious injuries. The bus was loaded with students traveling from Long Island to a band camp in Pennsylvania. Most of them were only 14 to 15 years old. Local officials are investigating the cause of the accident. A federal shutdown is looming, yet a few House Republicans are against discussing a defense funding bill. NTD's Arlene Richards tells us why and how the Speaker of the House is reacting. The House GOP Thursday again fails to pass a procedural vote, also called a rules vote. The final vote, 216 to 212. It means the House won't discuss a bill to fund the Pentagon for the next fiscal year which could help to prevent a looming government shutdown. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy blames the stalemate on five Republican holdouts. Well, if they don't want to even vote to allow us to bring the bills up, how does anybody complain you haven't brought all the bills up? I mean, um, it's it's frustrating in the sense that I don't understand why anybody votes against bringing the idea and having the debate. And then you got all the amendments if you don't like the bill. This is a whole new concept of individuals that just want to burn the whole place down. It, it doesn't work. The five holdouts include Andy Biggs of Arizona and Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. Biggs said, shut it down. At what point are we going to stand up and say no? Yeah. We're, we're not going to keep funding the government that's, that's attacking the American people. Right. I've been here long enough to have heard five-year plans, ten-year plans, and it, none of this ever gets changed. Yeah. Green said in a social media post that she voted no because they refused to take the war money from Ukraine out and put it in a separate bill. McCarthy, who supports giving weapons to Ukraine, met Ukraine President Volodymyr Zelensky on Thursday. The speaker didn't commit to new aid to Ukraine. I raised issues with them, seeing we're very concerned about accountability. Now, you've got to understand when we provide resources, we don't send cash, we send our weapons. And then we, when we vote for more um, monetary money, it's to rebuild the supply chain and the weapons for America. Meanwhile, a federal shutdown is looming. The federal government will shut down at midnight September 30th, unless Congress passes legislation to renew funding. 
but government operations wouldn't come to a complete halt, as contingency plans do exist for critical services like border security and federal law enforcement. Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley said the House has a job to do. Get in the room and figure it out. But do not play games with the American people or the taxpayers. It's unclear when Republicans may try the vote again. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Washington appealing for more support. But some Republicans are pushing back on sending more taxpayer money. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. What did President Biden announce today as he meets Zelensky? Good evening to you as well. President Biden today announced a new military aid package to Ukraine focused on strengthening its air defense capabilities. And thus, as President Biden today met with Zelensky at the White House and vowed to continue standing with Ukraine to help it reclaim its territory. Watch. The American people are determined to see to it that you read all we can to ensure the world stands with you. So we greatly appreciate the vital assistance provided by the United States to Ukraine to combat Russian terror, really terror, for the benefit of our nations and the world. Thursday marks the third time that Zelensky was invited to the White House during the Biden administration. And President Biden announced a new aid after their meeting today, and he said that the new weapons being sent over to Ukraine would help Ukraine to maintain its defense while enduring Russia's airstrikes in this winter. And thus, as President Biden and Zelensky are trying to make the case that the U.S. needs to maintain its support for Ukraine. But at the same time, over two dozen Republican lawmakers on Thursday sent a letter to the White House explicitly saying that they're going to oppose any additional funding for Ukraine. But China is our number one foreign policy threat, number one. And we're just we're not being honest about that. And that's 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 a huge, huge danger. Bipartisan majorities on Capitol Hill do support sending more aid to Ukraine. But the biggest question here is whether the small group of Republicans who are opposing it will create any problems for Congress to approve the additional $24 billion of Ukrainian aid that President Biden is requesting. And of course, President Zelensky would like to see as well. Back to you. Iris, thank you for that update. The situation in Ukraine is becoming more critical with the country enduring Russia's largest missile attacks in weeks. These deadly attacks have hit several cities, causing chaos and despair among the Ukrainian population. NTD's Jason Perry has the update. Just hours before Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky met U.S. President Biden at the White House, Ukraine was hit by a deadly Russian missile barrage across the entire country. According to Ukrainian officials, Russia fired 43 cruise missiles across Ukraine early Thursday morning, and Ukrainian air defenses shot down 36 of them. Firefighters extinguished a blaze in Kyiv neighborhoods after Russia's largest missile attack on the capital in weeks. Seven people were injured in the city, including a nine-year-old girl. I heard people screaming and crying and rushed outside. Then I went and found the cat. Thank God he is alive. There may still be people under the rubble. Rescuers are cutting chunks of cement to gain entry to reach areas on the ground floor and check if there are any people there. And first responders were seen digging people out of the rubble in Cherkasy, another place hit by Russian missiles. 
That attack injured at least 11 people, and their power grid was also hit. A Ukrainian grid operator said it was the first Russian attack on power infrastructure in six months. And another Ukrainian city, Kyrgyzstan, was also caught in the crossfire. There, Russian strikes killed at least two people and injured five. Although Ukraine is in a dire situation, it appears more and more people are voicing their stance against supporting Ukraine. On Thursday, protesters in NATO member Bulgaria voiced their frustrations in a demonstration. The Bulgarians do not want to participate in the war between Russia and Ukraine. We want to be a neutral country. We Bulgarians do not want to export arms, which incites the war further. The fact that they are trying to involve us in a conflict in which we should not be involved between two brotherly countries, this is the height of treason. Also, Ukraine's border ally, Poland, has recently said it will no longer provide weapons to Ukraine. The decision was made after a dispute between the two countries over Ukraine's grain exports. Poland said it will instead focus on rebuilding its own weapon supply. Jason Perry, NTD News. A leadership revamp in the military. The Senate today voting to confirm two top military officials. This comes despite a Republican senator's attempt to block the promotions over the Pentagon's abortion policy. General Randy George has been confirmed as the Army Chief of Staff by a 96-to-1 vote. And General Eric Smith will be the next Marine Corps Commandant. Just yesterday, General C.Q. Brown was confirmed as the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to succeed General Mark Milley. But as of now, Alabama Senator Tommy Tuberville continues to keep more than 300 military nominations in limbo. He's doing so in protest of a Pentagon policy that provides leave and reimbursements to service members who travel for abortions. Democrats are working to bypass the roadblock by approving one person at a time, a procedure that could potentially take months. A state of emergency in Eagle Pass, Texas, thousands of illegal immigrants are overrunning the tiny border town. NTD's Arian Pazdar spoke with a former border agent who was on the scene. Border agents in Eagle Pass, Texas on Thursday, overwhelmed by the amount of illegal immigrants. The mayor declared a state of emergency on Wednesday due to the influx. Eagle Pass only has around 30,000 residents. Reports say 15,000 immigrants came to the small town in the past few days, half of the town's population. There's no room for them. There's nowhere to put them. Victor Avila is a former supervisory special agent with ICE and Homeland Security. He's currently running for Congress. Now, you just got back from Eagle Pass. What do people there, people on the ground, what do they say? You know, local law enforcement, residents, what do they say about the situation? They're fed up. They, uh, I talked to a lot, of, and by the way, um, it's, it's not even a, 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 a partisan issue anymore. I, uh, Democrats, Republicans, they just want something done. He says thousands of people are sleeping under bridges across the small town. Meanwhile, one of the immigrants in Eagle Pass says his home country of Ecuador is being overrun by organized crime. There are criminals who go to school, they threaten the kids, they force them to take drugs, all that. So we don't want our children to be like that. In related news, Homeland Security on Wednesday night made a major announcement for almost half a million Venezuelans. They'll be allowed to stay in the U.S. and receive a work permit in the near future. On Thursday, a reporter asked if this will attract more Venezuelans to come, possibly worsening the situation in Eagle Pass, Texas. 
The president have worked very hard to implement a strategy when it comes to the border that is humane, safe, and, and has orderly enforcement. That is something that we have tried to do and worked really hard to do these last two years. She added that Homeland Security also allocated more agents to the border in Wednesday's announcement. Homeland Security says the Venezuela decision was made based on Venezuela's increased instability and lack of safety due to the enduring humanitarian, security, political and environmental conditions. Many people would agree that Venezuela really is a dangerous place to be right now. So is Homeland Security doing the right thing in extending the protected status? I talked to a lot of the Venezuelan nationals that are here. A lot of them, a majority of them, have not been in Venezuela for a long time. They left Venezuela many, many years ago and live in the surrounding uh, countries. Homeland Security's rule applies to all Venezuelans who came to the U.S. before July 31st. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. Did the Biden administration properly vet Afghan refugees? House Republicans are launching another investigation, this time on the Afghan resettlement program following the 2021 withdrawal. House Oversight Committee Chair James Comer says he believes the vetting process was lacking. Since the 2021 withdrawal, more than 70,000 former Afghan nationals have been relocated to communities throughout the U.S. via federal programs. Comer sent a letter to two Biden administration officials responsible for the programs. He's asking them to provide documents by October 5th. He's also asking for documents on the hiring of program employees and the vetting process for them. India's foreign ministry speaks about Canada and why it has stopped issuing visas in the country. A spokesman stressed security threats. If you're talking about reputational uh, issues and reputational damage, if there's one, any country that uh, needs to look at this, I think it is Canada and its growing reputation as a place, uh, as a safe haven for terrorists, for extremists, and for organized crime. You are aware of the security threats being faced by our High Commission and consulates in Canada. This has disrupted their normal functioning. Accordingly, our High Commission and consulates are temporarily unable to process visa applications. Tensions between the two countries have risen after Canada's announcement linking Indian agents to the murder of Sikh separatist leader Hardeep Singh Niger. Niger was shot outside a Sikh cultural centre in British Columbia, Canada in June. Canada also announced it will adjust staff at its high commission in India. Each country has kicked out one of the other's diplomats. Canada has the largest population of the Sikh religious minority group outside of India. Niger was the second prominent Sikh killed in Canada in the past two years. Coming up, former President Trump reportedly skipping the third presidential debate. Find out what he has planned instead. Hunter Biden has been ordered to appear in a federal court in Delaware next month. A judge has ruled he must show up in person for his arraignment on gun charges. Texas AG Ken Paxton makes his first public comments since his acquittal. It comes with accusations against the Biden administration and its motivation. And the U.S. will spend more than $750 billion over the next decade to revamp nearly every part of its aging nuclear defense system. We'll have the details when we come back.
Welcome back. Former President Donald Trump reportedly has no plans to attend the third presidential debate to be held in Miami in early November. The news comes after sources also said he won't be taking part in the second debate in California next week. The former president will instead travel to Detroit to deliver a speech to an audience that will include current and former union members. The primetime appearance will serve as counter-programming to the GOP debate. Trump has questioned the purpose of attending the debates due to his large lead over Republican rivals. The Real Clear Politics average of polls has him up by more than 46 percentage points over Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, his closest challenger. President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, will be appearing in a federal court in Wilmington, Delaware on October 3rd. He's facing federal gun charges in the first ever prosecution of a sitting U.S. president's child. Hunter Biden was indicted last week for allegedly lying on a form to acquire a handgun in 2018 and for being an illegal drug user in possession of the gun. His lawyer has said he plans to plead not guilty. Hunter Biden sought to avoid traveling to Delaware to appear for the hearing in person, arguing it would pose logistical challenges. But the judge in the case rejected his request to appear by video. Special counsel David Weiss is prosecuting the case. He also opposed allowing Hunter Biden to appear by video for the routine proceeding. Weiss said in an in-person hearing would promote the public's confidence the younger Biden is being treated consistently with other defendants. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton says he believes the Biden administration was behind his recent impeachment. That was in an exclusive interview with Tucker Carlson released on X. Entity's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Paxton's first public comments since being acquitted on 16 charges. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton described the impeachment process as horrible in his interview with Tucker Carlson and says he believes it was an attempt to get him out of the way by the Biden administration. They hired, I think it was four lawyers. Two of them came from the Biden DOJ. That's not an accident. They were sent there. Paxton was suspended without pay and issued a gag order during the impeachment proceedings, despite no evidence or witnesses being presented. He's missed half of his third term due to the suspension since being reelected last year. They should have to prove something before the will of the voters is overridden. The Texas AG has brought 48 lawsuits against the Biden administration with what Paxton says is a 77% win rate. And then you have these other forces come in with the Rove and the TLR, Texas for Lawsuit Reform Group, and that was the power. And, and by the way, Texas for Lawsuit Reform gave lots of money to House members and lots of members to senators. So they have a lot of influence. They give more money to Republican members than any other group or any other single donor. Almost every single one of those Republicans that voted against me got money from Texas for lawsuit reform a lot. Paxton says he was met with opposition from the Republican Texas House Speaker when trying to investigate voter fraud in the state and alleges he was selected by the Texas House Democrat bloc and a few GOP detractors. If you can do impeachments like this and you can have mail-in ballots, we don't have democracy. We have control by a few people. He says things really got heated when he started challenging big tech and pharma. The federal government has this this immunity for them. And I'm like, this is wrong. They didn't test this thing. And then they didn't tell us about those side effects. They had an obligation to test it, even if they weren't liable. Paxton says he's feeling re-energized after his acquittal and suggested a future run for the U.S. Senate was on the table. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 
the U.S. will spend more than $750 billion over the next decade to revamp nearly every part of its aging nuclear defenses. Why is this happening now and what does the process involve? We speak with NTD Business's Don Ma to find out. Don Ma, thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be here, Tiffany. $750 billion, that's a lot of money. This sounds pretty urgent. Yeah, Tiffany, officials are saying they simply can't wait any longer uh, because uh, some systems and parts are more than 50 years old. And you know, Tiffany, some of the components in, in these, like uh, like the plastics and metals uh, and, and the wiring set inside each detonator, um, there's also questions about how years of aging might affect their integrity. So technicians uh, are starting what could be the government's biggest nuclear overhaul since the Cold War. And that's including uh, for new stealth bombers, submarines, and ground-based intercontinental ballistic missiles. And Don, how is this overhaul being done? Right, uh, so Tiffany, reports are saying that, uh, first of all, it's not easy. I mean. Think about it. The best way to certify uh, a weapon works as designed is to blow it up, right? But explosive tests have been banned since the George H.W. Bush administration by international treaty. And what's further complicating matters is that uh, weapons are so old, many of those original manufacturers and contractors have gone out of business. So this is forcing our nuclear labs to reverse engineer some old parts. But what they have to do here is Technicians put components through uh, through endless tests. Uh, they heat weapons uh, to test extreme temperatures. They drop them at high speeds, uh, simulating a plane crash. They shoot them at high velocity. Uh, and these tests are meant to uh, simulate real-world scenarios. Uh, they do th these tests to make sure the weapons are stable enough to blow up as intended if it was ever needed. Wow, and what are officials saying about why we need to maintain our nuclear weapons? Yeah, great question. Well, the director of uh, weapons programs for the Department of Energy says that uh, we want to preserve our way of life, uh, and that is through without fighting major wars. And he says nothing really works to deter aggressors unless you have the foundation of a nuclear deterrent. So that's what he's saying. Uh, some military leaders are also saying that the U.S. has entered an era of global threats, including a nuclear weapons buildup by China. And of course, besides China, Russia's uh, repeated threats to use a nuclear bomb in Ukraine. So, of course, America's aged weapons need to be replaced to ensure they work. And by the way, the U.S. maintains uh, 1,550 active nuclear warheads, and the government plans to modernize them all, Tiffany. Wow, or peace through strength, as uh, Reagan famously said. Well, Don Ma, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much, Tiffany. Coming up, analysis of the House Republicans holding out on the defense bill. A reporter says it isn't really about defense spending at all. Find out what he says is behind the standoff. California's controversial COVID misinformation law is about to be repealed. We speak with an attorney who was involved in a case that challenged its constitutionality. And disgraced attorney Alec Murdoch has pleaded guilty to a crime for the first time. He's already serving life sentences for the murders of his wife and son. That and more after the break.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Almost half a million Venezuelans are allowed to stay in the U.S. and get work permits in the near future. This comes as the border city of Eagle Pass, Texas, declares an emergency over the influx of illegal immigrants. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky visited Washington, D.C., meeting with President Biden and congressional leaders. He's trying to shore up support for Ukraine as some Republicans are hesitant. The House again failed to move forward with the Pentagon budget bill for the next fiscal year. Five Republicans are holding out as a federal shutdown looms. Why are those few Republicans holding out? What are they hoping to gain and how are Democrats reacting? For analysis, we spoke with Lawrence Wilson, a reporter for the Epic Times. Lawrence Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. My pleasure, thank you. To begin, why are Republicans struggling to pass a simple procedural vote? Well, it really comes down to uh, the wishes of a relatively small number of real fiscal hawks uh, in the Republican Party. And this procedural vote is really not about the procedural vote. It's not even about the $826 billion uh, defense appropriations bill, which is what the vote concerned. Really, this group is trying to make two points uh, to their uh, House uh, colleagues. First, they want to make significant cuts in federal spending, more than what the House and the Senate had previously agreed to, and this is a bit of leverage they have. And second, they want to make sure that they consider all 12 appropriations bills under what's called regular order, and that means one by one, not lumped into a minibus or an omnibus uh, appropriations bill, but bring them up one by one so we can debate them and amend them and uh, vote on them, consider them individually. Now, what they're afraid of is that if they pass this big defense bill, which is over half the discretionary budget, then that kind of locks them into a corner on the remaining appropriations. And given all that, how has House Speaker Kevin McCarthy been reacting to all of this? <laughs> well, Kevin McCarthy is genial, optimistic, and above all, patient. But I can tell you that's wearing a little bit thin right now. He's growing frustrated with this relatively small group. It was just uh, five who voted against this rule, plus one who did so on procedural grounds just to enable him to reintroduce uh, the uh, the legislation. But he's growing frustrated with this small group of members. And he told reporters after the vote today, he said, it's frustrating in the sense that I don't understand why anybody votes against bringing up the idea and having the debate. M Mr. McCarthy said, then you can amend the bill if you don't like it, you can debate it. But it's just this small group of individuals he, he said want to, quote, burn the whole place down. Uh, so he is frustrated and evidenced by those strong words, but he pledged to keep working to find a solution. And on that note, what is the spending limit that the holdout members are looking for? Well, the real hawkish members uh, are looking for a limit of all, on all discretionary spending, including defense, of $1.471 trillion. Now that would be a significant reduction in spending and it would go back to pre-COVID levels. That's in line 
with the Limit, Save, Grow Act that Republicans passed in April. Really, they were looking for a point of leverage uh, against President Biden in the debt ceiling negotiations. <clears throat> and some of these Congress people, they want to stick with that. Others are willing to settle for $1.526 trillion, which they think is still good. It cuts spending, but it might be more acceptable to Democrats and maybe get the job done. Now, if that doesn't seem like a big difference, just remember that it's nearly $60 billion different, and that amounts to about 165 bucks for every man, woman, and child in the country. So you say to one of these Congress folk who are lobbying for the greater reduction, well, it's only 60 billion, and you'll somebody, see somebody get red in the cheeks because uh, to them, that's a lot of money and they're fighting for every dollar. Indeed, and Lawrence, all of this comes as there's just nine days left before a potential government shutdown. What is the mood in Congress? Well, Democrats, especially in the House, are beyond frustrated with the Republicans for their seeming inability uh, to get anything done. And GOP House members are losing patience, too, and some in the Senate. Senator Josh Hawley said today, let's quit talking about a shutdown and get it done, meaning pass the appropriations bills. Uh, McCarthy, for his part, is determined to find a pathway to unite his people and get the appropriations process completed, whether that's a continuing resolution to buy a little time or passing all of the uh, appropriations bills by September uh, the 30th. Now, just remember, that's a pretty rare event. Uh, the last time all 12 bills were passed on time by the end of the fiscal year was 1997. So this is really something really good that uh, everybody's pushing for, but it's just been hard to get there. Wow, a lot at stake here. Well, Lawrence Wilson, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, thank you, Tiffany. California Governor Gavin Newsom is expected to sign a bill that repeals the state's controversial COVID-19 misinformation law. For an analysis of the legal challenges that were filed against the law, we speak with an attorney who was involved in one of the cases. Janine Yunis, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Janine, to begin, this controversial law is on track to being overturned. What would that mean, especially for the medical community? Yeah, well, it looks like the uh, California state legislature is going to repeal the law on its own, which is a very unusual uh, move, <laughs> less than a year actually after it actually passed it. Um, this is good news for the medical community. I mean, the law was very censorious. It was designed to stop doctors from voicing dissent from sort of state-approved or CDC-approved opinions about COVID-19 including whether masks work, uh, whether the vaccines are safe and effective, and that sort of thing. Um, it's very clear from the legislative history that it wanted to shut those doctors up. So all around, this is good news for doctors in the state of California. And we also have presidential hopeful RFK Jr. weighing in. He's calling this a huge win in the battle for freedom. How big of a deal is this? It's a pretty big deal. <laughs> there have been two court cases where it was pretty clear the government was going to lose. So one of those was ours, uh, where we obtained a uh, preliminary injunction in the district court. That's an early assessment from the court that the law was unconstitutional. Um, the other case went to the Ninth Circuit. It had had the opposite result in the lower court. 
uh, where the, the judge did not find the law unconstitutional. It went up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. And although the court hasn't issued a decision yet, it was pretty clear from the argument that the judges took major issue with the government's position. So it looked like they were on track to um, to find in the plaintiff's favor. So I think that those um, court cases influenced the state. And th so that's a very good sign. And on the ruling that found it unconstitutional, give us a sense of why that is. So the judge in our case, Hope versus Newsom, found that it was unconstitutional on due process grounds. We had raised two different issues. One was First Amendment and one was due process. We argued that the law was so vague that doctors uh, wouldn't know what it meant. So it would have a chilling effect. They would be afraid to speak at all. And the reason it was vague is that it had a very strange definition of what constituted misinformation. So the law prohibited doctors from spreading, quote unquote, misinformation about COVID-19. And misinformation was defined as um, false information contrary to the scientific consensus, contradicted by the standard of care, or something like that. A very convoluted standard that doesn't really uh, exist and doctors aren't familiar with in the two terms it wasn't clear how they related to each other. So um, we argued that the doc that doctors don't know what this means. They're not going to know in their practice how to implement this. And so it has the effect of making them just shut up, which is true. And on that note, it seems this bill was coming under fire from all sides. You had Governor Gavin Newsom saying it would have this chilling effect. You have others saying it's unclear what even is defined as misinformation. But under this law, who would be deciding what counts as misinformation? So it would be the California Medical Board. Uh, and yeah, Newsom said in his signing statement, he had he was sort of signing the law reluctantly, but he was confident that it would only be used in circumstances where it was real, really sort of egregious stuff. But that's not how this works. You know, once a law is passed, it can be used in any way it can be reasonably interpreted. So, and it can also have the chilling effect. So, uh, the, you know, the governor should have listened to his conscience and declined to sign the law into effect. Um, but unfortunately, he didn't. And given these developments, what does this mean for the doctor-patient relationship going forward? It's good news for the doctor-patient relationship. I mean, one of our contentions was that this will make doctors less candid with their, their patients. They'll be afraid to say anything that departs from state orthodoxy when it comes to COVID topics. I don't want to be too... Um, I don't want to celebrate too much, though, because it's quite clear that there are other... Uh, laws, malpractice standards that can be used in California to um, prosecute doctors who disagree on these issues. And in fact, there was a doctor recently who was taken before the medical board uh, under old standards. Um, so what they used to use before to discipline doctors for malpractice or negligence. Uh, and that was, she had just said that she didn't think masks works. That, she, that ivermectin might be an effective treatment for COVID-19. So I'm concerned that these older standards, the older um, malpractice code and that sort of thing will be used in order to get doctors who disagree with the state on these matters. Uh, so I think we have to, it's, it's, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think it's still going to be a problem. A lot at stake here. Well, Janine Yunus, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Now, zooming in on the prosecution of disgraced former South Carolina attorney and convicted murderer Alec Murdoch. For the first time, Murdoch has pleaded guilty to a crime.
Zelensky pleaded guilty today to 22 fraud and money laundering charges in a federal courtroom in Charleston, South Carolina. Murdoch and a bank employee allegedly defrauded his personal injury clients and laundered more than $7 million of funds. A U.S. district judge accepted and signed the plea agreement. Murdoch cried as he told the judge he was pleading guilty of his own free will. He is already serving two life sentences for the 2021 murders of his wife and son. The plea agreement does not have a sentence recommendation included in it. The judge will determine that at a later date. Authorities have found more drugs at a Bronx daycare center where a one-year-old child died after being exposed to opioids. The NYPD announced today that fentanyl was among the 8 to 10 kilos of drugs they found beneath a trapdoor at the daycare center. They also discovered other narcotics and drug paraphernalia in the same area. 36-year-old Gray Mendez and 41-year-old Carlista Acevedo Brito are now facing federal drug charges in the one-year-old Nicholas Dominici's death. Mendez owns the daycare. Brito is her husband's cousin who lives in a bedroom within the daycare center. They've both been charged with murder, among other crimes. Authorities are still looking for a third male suspect who hasn't been publicly named. He's believed to be Mendez's husband. Three other children were hospitalized after being exposed to the opioids at the daycare last week. They were given the opioid reversal drug Narcan to save them. Coming up, some of America's best-selling writers are waging a lawsuit against OpenAI, including the creator of Game of Thrones. The authors say their copyrighted works are being used without permission. McDonald's sued again because another customer spills hot coffee on herself. We speak with the lawyer of the woman seeking damages. And tonight in the NFL, the Giants play the Niners without their biggest star. Can Daniel Jones help them pull the upset? That and more when we come back. Welcome back. 17 of America's best-selling writers are waging a lawsuit against OpenAI, including the creator of Game of Thrones. They say that generative AI uses their copyrighted works without permission. John Grisham could be going to court for real. The legal thriller writer is among major U.S. authors unhappy with ChatGPT creator OpenAI. A trade group that represents the likes of Grisham this week filed to sue the firm. The Authors Guild also represents big names like Game of Thrones novelist George R.R. R. Martin and freedom writer Jonathan Franzen. The suit accuses OpenAI of unlawfully training its artificial intelligence-based chatbot on their work. It joins several others from writers, visual artists and source code owners against generative AI providers. Similar lawsuits are pending against Meta Platforms and Stability AI over the data used to train their AI systems. OpenAI and other defendants have said their use of training data scraped from the internet qualifies as fair use under US copyright law. A spokesperson for the company said on Wednesday that it respects authors' rights. But the Authors Guild said writers must have the ability to control if and how their works are used by generative AI. They said they needed this to, quote, preserve our literature. 
The new lawsuit is concerned with datasets used to train OpenAI's large language model to respond to human prompts. They allege it included text from the author's works that may have been taken from illegal online pirate book repositories. The complaint said ChatGPT generated accurate summaries of the author's books when prompted, which they believe indicated their text is included in its database. It also cited growing concerns that authors could be replaced by systems like ChatGPT that make what they called low-quality ebooks, impersonating authors and displacing human-authored books. McDonald's sued over its hot coffee again. An 85-year-old woman spilled the coffee onto herself, saying it caused her physical pain and emotional distress. NTD's Dave Martin talks with her lawyer. McDonald's has been sued again over a hot coffee spill. My client, uh, she, she went to a McDonald's here, located here in San Francisco, uh, specifically the one on Fillmore Street. She decided to get a cup of coffee. The lid was not properly put on. Uh, as she put it, as she was about to drink the cup of coffee, it spilt all over her stomach area, groin and leg area, uh, and she received uh, some burns. Attorney Dylan Hackett represents plaintiff Mabel Childress, a woman in her 80s. Murray says that when Childress reported the incident to McDonald's employees, they ignored her. She spoke to, I believe, three different employees, and one actually started um, laughing at her. And at that point, she left and decided to treat her injuries um, that day. The case is very similar to a famous 1994 case in which 79-year-old Stella Liebeck successfully sued McDonald's after she too spilled its hot coffee onto herself. At one point she was awarded $2.7 million, though she ultimately settled for an undisclosed amount. Liebeck's injuries back then were far more severe. Third degree burns, she had to have surgery, she had to have skin grafts. Murray says that even though Childress's injuries are less severe, she might be awarded more money. California is a more uh, friendly jurisdiction for plaintiffs because they respect uh, the rights of those that have been injured, um, more so than probably was the case in New Mexico. Another thing is 30 years has passed, and so the cost of medical expenses and damages has gone up. Meanwhile, Childress is currently recovering and in good spirits. This is Dave Martin for NTD News. The franchise who runs the McDonald's on Fillmore Street said his restaurants have strict food safety protocols in place, including training crew to ensure lids on hot beverages are secure. He said he's reviewing this new legal claim in detail. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, week three of the NFL season starts tonight with the Giants playing the Niners in San Francisco. Why do you think New York is such a big underdog? Yeah, 10 points, kind of big. I think Saquon Barkley's injury certainly has something to do with it, although New York is really a question mark at this point for the whole team. You know, they were shut out in their first game and the first half of their second game before pulling off a miracle. But I think this is really more about how good San Francisco is. Uh, you know, they've got Brock Purdy healthy. They've got Christian McCaffrey healthy. I think it's either them, Dallas, or Philadelphia is going to be the team that represents the Super Bowl out of the NFC. And now looking at the college schedule this weekend, what games jump out at you? Yeah, there's a lot of good games this weekend. You know, there's Alabama Ole Miss, there's Clemson, Florida State, uh, Iowa, Penn State. But I think the big one is going to be Ohio State, Notre Dame. Now, Notre Dame is actually the slight underdog at home in this one, just like Clemson. 
I think both teams pulled a minor upset. Now, Notre Dame has scored more than 40 points a game in all four of their games this year. I think second-year head coach Mar Marcus Freeman comes out of a, with a big win in this one. And now one team you didn't mention there is Colorado, which plays Oregon Saturday. What do you make of the job Deion Sanders has done so far? Well, yeah, he's coach of the year at this point. You know, they were 1-11 last year. He's already got them 3-0 this year. They're ranked in the top 25. And there's an excitement around the program. Now, all that being said, I don't think they're beating Oregon this Saturday, especially without two-way star Travis Hunter. They're three touchdown underdogs at this point. I certainly don't think it's going to be blowout. I definitely think they make a game of it, but I, I think Oregon's going to come out on top ultimately. And Dave now shifting gears to baseball with less than two weeks left in the regular season. What teams stand out as World Series contenders? Well, certainly Atlanta looks really good right now, that's for sure. Also, Houston I like, you know, partly based on the recent success in the postseason. I mean, if those two met, it would be three of the last six World Series champions. I actually like the Dodgers roster a whole lot. It's tough to choose them, though. You know, they've been to the playoffs 11 straight years. They only have one World Series title to show for it. So I think um, it's very tough to choose them uh, when it comes to October. Well, thanks for joining us, Dave. Thank you, Tiff. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.